This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Kirk Megu, host of Politics and Polemics on the New Books Network. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes Store or on any one of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, Are you an academic that wants to get heard nationally? Check out my free training on three steps how to use your intellectual authority to become a media personality at becomeapublicintellectual.com. That's becomeapublicintellectual.com. You can find the links below. And now, on to this week's episode. Hi, today my guest is Saqib Qureshi author of the forthcoming book, The Broken Contract, Making Our Democracies Accountable, Representative, and Less Wasteful, published by Lioncrest Publishing, out in August this year. Welcome, Sakib. Thank you very much, Kirk. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, I'm I'm coming from what's normally sunny Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean, but it's a little overcast today. We have some... uh, perhaps a tropical storm coming up. Where are you um, uh, right now? I'm in Markham, and the weather, as you describe it, is practically identical over here mm-hmm. as well. So we may as well be sitting in the same, in the same <laughs> suburb. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I, uh, I know Markham well. I've, uh, I actually grew up not uh, very far from there and, and have family, family there. So it's uh, nice to um, uh, be in touch with, uh, with, with someone from that background, <laughs> we, we we like to um, uh, start off our interviews usually by having our guests uh, tell us a bit about themselves. Uh, you have a very interesting background, and you know, I, I'd like I'd like you to just uh, tell us about your background uh, and re- relate it to, to the book as well, please. Right. So my background is quite eclectic. I think uh, I'm I'm British. I speak English with an English accent, as I keep reminding everybody. Um, I've spent most of my life in London. Uh, my undergraduate, my PhD, my first few jobs were all in London. And then I spent six odd years in Dubai, working in the government there, before migrating to Toronto in 2011, which is where I've been since. Um and now I'm here. I, I, I run a real estate development firm and I've written a couple of books out here. So 
that's a kind of high level of it. And within all of that, within all of that, uh, you know, I've had, I've lived in three continents. I've worked in multiple industries, investment banking, management consulting, government, uh, and now as an entrepreneur. So I kind of look at things from not only a multi-geographic perspective, I think, but also a multi a multi-sectoral kind of professional perspective, um, which is a bit unusual. Uh, it has its pros and cons, and uh, and that's really the summary of uh, of who I am. I think. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, um, I I see that you are um, you know a fellow at the LSE. Um, and you've written for the Financial Times, Independent, uh, the Wall Street Journal, Entrepreneur Magazine. Uh, these are in fields um, that would include, um, let's say, policy about you know uh, democratic governance, but also other things as well. I assume that's right. So my work for the Financial Times, for instance, was largely in stock markets. Right. So well outside of conventional public policy. Right, right. And um, I, I know you mentioned in your book, The Broken Contract, that you're not writing this necessarily as a political scientist or, or a commentator, but, uh, but from the perspective of an ordinary citizen, although you're, you're quite an extraordinary one in, in many ways, but, but, but from the perspective of, of a sort of a, a layman, uh, with a with with practical concerns rather than philosophical concerns, am I right? Um, yes. Well, thank you first for the generous remark. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think you put the nail on the head there, which is that I'm not involved in day-to-day politics. I'm not a, a political scientist. I'm not a political commentator. I don't really harbor any political ambitions. It's very much a case of I'm an ordinary citizen. I pay my taxes, go to work have a family um, and uh, and in paying those taxes, I've come to kind of realize that things aren't really as they should be. And for many people, politics is a game, you know, being mm-hmm. part of the game, being part of the system. But I think um, that needs to be addressed. I think that needs to be really thought through um, for everybody's sake, frankly. Right, right, right. Well, let's um, start with the title of your book, uh, The Broken Contract. But what do you mean by the broken contract and why is it important? So the broken contract speaks to uh, an expression that we've, in that at least in Western political philosophy, we've been aware of for centuries, the social contract. And it predates Rousseau, uh, the French philosopher, though he made it very famous. Uh, and it really refers to the, the relationship between um, a government or a state and its people, that there's a contract in place, uh, a social contract in place, where uh, the government or the state uh, uh, takes um, uh, taxes and performs a certain series of tasks, and in return ordinary citizens pay their taxes and uh, curtail the individual rights. That's the essence of it. Um, and the reason I wrote the title or the, the reason I chose the title of Broken Contract was the more I probed what democracy in the Western tradition meant, the more I realized that democracy is not 
the act or the process of voting. That is not really what defines our democracy. Um, putting out a vote every four years, it has the optics of democracy, but not the soul. Uh, and the soul of democracy, I thought, was really this social contract, which is essentially we as citizens will fund, we will pay our taxes, we will fund the government, and in return, sorry, and we will honor the laws and the regulations and therefore curtail some of our rights and wants. And in return, the government will perform a series of functions and it will be accountable for those functions. The government will be representative of the community and that government won't waste money. And now, and those are the kind of three pillars I think we speak to when we speak of democracy. It's not the act of voting. It's really a government which is accountable, which is representative, and which doesn't squander our wealth. And from there, I began to kind of see the disconnection between the democracy we think we have and the one that we actually have. Mm, yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, it, it, it resonates a lot with my own work on um, constitution reform and political theory and what in, in terms of the, the simplistic critique of democracy as, as merely, um, you know, a, a process where one votes for, for a government. I, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Fareed uh, Zakaria's work in the 1990s, the uh, illiberal democracy. And uh, uh, you, you, you may or may not be familiar with that work, but certainly with your experience on different continents. And for example, let's say, I'd, I'd be very interested to learn about your experience working with the government of Dubai, um, where, if, if I'm correct, the government of Dubai doesn't even have voting. Is that correct? Um, there, there's no, that's right. Political system. Yeah. right. That's right. So, it doesn't have voting. No, it, it, okay. Let, all right. Let, let me just jump into that. I, I'm, I'm skipping over some steps here, but, but that's interesting in and of itself. And, and So let's touch on that. Would you say in a system like that, um, there are some elements which may be sort of uh, um, holding more, you know, uh, holding fast better to a social contract than in systems where there is voting. Um, I think the governments of the Gulf region generally, but Dubai more specifically, um, I don't really think that the concept of a social contract in the Western tradition is one that exists out there. Right. Um, so I think the relationship between state and citizen is culturally vastly different. Now, having okay. said that, one of the odd features I found in Dubai was that there, there are, so there is an accountability in government um, which in some instances is way tougher than it is out here. Mm-hmm. Um, so government at times, not always, but at times is way more accountable than it is in, um, in the West. Not accountable to citizens as such, but certainly accountable per se. Right. Like, for example, can you give me an, uh, an example? So, for example... Um, I mean, I recall one instance where the ruler turned up to um, uh, a government department at nine in the morning, found out that a good chunk of senior management 
were late by a few minutes and what have you. Um, and he pulled the plug on their employment. Right. They had an amazingly strong reason. But the idea being that if you're not going to turn up to work on time, then you know, you're going to have to answer to somebody. And so that sent out a very powerful message to the entire government ecosystem, which was, hang on a minute, you know what? We can't just drip feed in whenever we want to. We've got to be there on time, lest it happens to us. Right. So kind of like a management discipline sort of, of thing. Not necessarily uh, uh, um, a, a democratic social contract, but, but, uh, but almost like uh, terms and conditions of employment. I, I, I'm, so, I'm interested in exploring that because, I, because living in the Caribbean uh, which it's which is a, a sort of liminal territory. It 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 is Western and non-Western at the same time, you know. And then having experience also with with Asian democracies and and, and African democracies and and thinking about democracies in different contexts outside of the West. I uh, in the '90s there was a big debate um, about Asian values uh, because a place like Singapore, for example. Uh, you know, there's a there's a famous case. Who I, I can't remember the person's last name. Michael something, and and he was caned, an American citizen, doing some prank or, or vandalism or something out there. And then people talking about human rights and uh, etc. And Lee Kuan Yew at the time, you know, said, you know, we have our own set of values. Human rights may not be there, but they do have elections, and they do have strong you know, accountability and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, so so they um, may not necessarily, you know, follow the Rousseauian idea of the social contract, but there are elements there. Um, the, is, with your experience, you know, around the world, uh, do, do things like that uh, inform your perspective when you're, you know, say, writing this book? Um, consciously, I would say, they didn't because I really kept quite narrow. Uh, I kept narrow to five countries, Canada, the US, the UK, New Zealand, and Australia. And I, and I wanted to focus on those five because they do have, they do have a more common political cultural fabric. I didn't want to delve into the likes of Singapore or for that matter, India or Egypt, where, you know, you've got colonial uh, histories which have left an imprint of a political uh, infrastructure, but the culture, the, the the kind of socio-anthropological culture has not lent itself or doesn't lend itself so easily to that. You have to bear in mind that democracy in the West has, you know, it, it didn't suddenly arrive one fine morning on December the 7th, 1641. It kind of just evolved over time, uh, mm-hmm. over many, many centuries of fine-tuning and what have you. And and it it owes itself, it's married integrally, I think, to the people that it's part of. And so, and so the point that I'm stressing, I think, is really that democracy has a culture, um, or at least the, the, the democracy that we live in in the West has a culture to it, um, which is quite grassrootsy, really. I mean, for instance, it's... In the West, I think democracy is deeply embedded with the notion of individual rights, um, mm-hmm. at least Western liberal democracy is, whereas though that sense of individual rights is not so pronounced 
in India or Singapore or Egypt. You know, those countries, they don't have those traditions of individuality and individualism. There are other streams of caste, sect, um, which, which, which tend to have greater prominence than, than the individual, which is very typical of early modern or pre-modern societies, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, the idea that uh, democracy has a culture and a history, I, I think, is, is very, very important. And, and th- those are, are things that I am particularly interested in. But I, I appreciate, you know, the fact that, yes, definitely your book explicitly does focus on, you know, Canada, the, the U.S., um, uh, the U.K., and I, I think that there's a there's a couple more things that I want to explore with that too. What one is an, an interesting remark you made because I also have experience in, in those countries, not Australia as such, but Canada, U.S., U.K. And um, you you made a remark that uh, Canadian democracy, you found um, there there was more of a of a disconnect between you know a, a detachment and and a sort of an immunity from the citizens. Uh, than say in in the the US or or the UK or Australia, I, I that resonated with me because I I did find you know someone that lived for many years in Canada, and and has, has been around the world. I I do find that Canada has sort of a perhaps the most apolitical population that that I've I've seen, and 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 the culture is uh, the the political culture is in such a bubble. I found. Uh, do you want to sort of expand on that in, in any way? Yeah, I think my, I mean, when I migrated here back in 2011, it took a while for me to get my head around that the relationship between people and their government here isn't isn't remotely like what it is in the UK or, or the US. Um, mm-hmm. There's very limited ownership of government. There's very little comprehension or realization that the government exists Um uh, for the people and individuals own their government. And if the government or a particular agency doesn't do its job properly, then you don't just sit there and smile at the person who failed, but you actually push back and demand an answer or an explanation or an apology. Or, you know, it's, it's a kind of notion that, you know, over, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a lack of ownership. It's a lack of, um, recognition i think it's a it's so hard to put into words but i think the closest that i would say is that at times i thought i was several steps down a classic socialist country Mm -hmm. at times in the last 10 years i've kind of i've i've worked with government to kind of think well they think they're doing me a favor by 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 turning up on time or you know you can't you can't expect them to work with your deadlines or or sensitivities or subtleties. So let me give you a great example, okay? So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I'm in the real estate development industry and I've been to a few conversations with 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 the city officials about building things and, and whatnot. And, and we'd sometimes present a plan to do something um, and we'd go to the city and say, look, you know, what do you think? And they would say, sometimes they would say, well, we can't comment on what you've just said. So why don't you put it in writing and then we'll comment on it. And we'll say, you know, we can go ahead and do that. We can go back, employ an architect, put some bits and pieces back in for you. That'll take a couple of weeks and whatnot. But 
you know, if we were to do this, what would be the gut level instinctive response? What do you think? You know, and instead of trying to be helpful to the people who pay their salaries, you'll get this kind of obstinacy. Well, we can't really comment because uh, you have to put it in writing and then we'll review. Well, I'm not asking for an official verdict. I'm just asking for a ballpark, you know, guiding sense as to how things typically play out on the universe that you're part of. You know, and that that kind of speaks to, you know, that 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 piece about being helpful, about realizing that you only exist in government because the people paid for you and you are meant to be helping them so that everybody comes out a bit better than before. That's the, you know, and that I think I I, I often see missing. I I my interactions with government officials in the UK and the US tend have 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 rarely branched in that direction. You know, people will feel the sense of uh, responsibility, maybe, or you know that we owe, or that we are at the, almost not not quite at the mercy, but certainly we are obligated to citizens to put our best foot forward. Yeah, definitely, definitely, I. I um... I, I agree with you with those observations. And, you know, I, you know, having, you know, lived and grown up and gone to school in, in Canada, I, I thought about it quite a bit and, and, you know, traveling and afterwards. I, I do think that, um, uh, that there are some peculiarities about Canadian history that, that adds to that, you know, the, the fact that, um, you know, a, a lot of it was, you know, government based and driven um, in a way that, say, the U.S. and U.K., um, perhaps we're not, um, but also I I think in in the contemporary period I I also wonder, you know, and this is more of a, a sensitive question, but you do you do sort of obliquely raise it and and directly in another context in your book, but I I somehow think you know that the the immigration question has may have a lot to do with it in a place like Toronto, for example, where so much of the population was was not born in Toronto. Uh, 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 or not born in Canada and, and coming from cultures that may not have the democratic cultures that, that you you talk about that you know democracy has a culture um, I I wonder how much you know that also may have to do with it and, and you know there, there are people who, who criticize um, you know excessive immigration in into Western countries by, by saying Western values are eroding and and if democracy is something that that is dependent upon a culture, and in your analysis of the social contract as being um, cultural, uh, you know, very much cultural, and not uh, not merely not something that you can get online, uh, as you put or in a written document, um, well, how, how does that work into the equation for you? You open up a real um, minefield there because um, uh, this can be manipulated one way or the other by all sorts of political camps. But um, I think the point that you're making, which is that immigrants from cultures which are not familiar with Western liberal traditions of democracy have their own, sorry, they bring they bring in their own cultural frameworks and their attachments and perspectives. That's very, very true. Migration is not an overnight process. You don't suddenly leave, you know, a foreign country um, and then arrive in Canada as a landed immigrant, and suddenly you've migrated. No, migration is a multi-decade process. It takes an awful lot of time for people to leave a home 
and find a new home, actually feel at home in that new home. Um, and they do bring their historic or previous cultural baggage, some of it which is amazingly good, and some of which is not so good, and some of which is a bit of both. And so within all of that baggage that comes with them, you know, they do carry a, a, a quite often, very often, a certain perspective of what government means to them and where they stand with respect to government. And in many parts of the kind of pre-modern um, uh, or early modern world or what some other people might call developing world, you know, there is no real meaningful tradition of citizens owning their government, you know. There's no, there's no, there's very limited expectations that government will listen to you. Very limited. Which, which, and because of that, the participation that immigrant communities historically have had here in Canada with respect to politics has been a bit more limited because they don't really have that much confidence given the countries they've come from. I think, so you're absolutely spot on there. And I think the other point really is that the, is that the generation next or the children of the migrant generation, they don't really buy into that. They feel deeply Canadian or American or British. And so they kind of put their foot down and say, well, you know what? I don't care, but I am a citizen here. I am entitled to X, Y, and Z. And I'm going to now write five letters to my various, you know, political councillors or letter to the MP, you know? So I think what you're seeing is that the immigrant generation is arrive is I mean does arrive here. It takes a lot of time to effect migration meaningfully, and they do carry a bunch of you know legacy uh, uh, cultural items in their suitcase. But but their children pretty much jettison all of that. They just kind of like yeah, you know what that kind of worked for my parents' generation. They didn't really get involved, but I'm going to get involved, and I'm not going to. S- sit back and watch, um, you know, things happen that I just think are ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that that's correct. Um, I think from your biography uh, within the book, you, you talk about being the son of Pakistani immigrants. And yes, I, I, I'm also the son of, of immigrants. And I, I can definitely identify with that. And it's interesting, as I've sort of re-migrated back, you know, I, I bring you know, these sort of Western ideas, um, and which is, is kind of foreign sometimes uh, to, to the people in my ancestral home, uh, you know, who, who may not have the, the same ideas of accountability in, in government. So that's interesting. Um, the, the, so in, in your book, um, uh, you know, I've, we've been exploring this idea of the social contract because uh, I philosophically, I think it's, it's interesting and, and, um, and you know it's something that's debated quite a bit, and and you know, uh, but but I think that basically, if I understand you correctly, that um, you know you talk about the social contract as largely being a sort of a cultural uh, a, a I don't I don't know if the word construct is is the right thing, but 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 a cultural product, let's say, of of the West and and, and something part of it and. Um, and so, so accountability and, and representation, it, it's, it's part of the relationship um, and a sort of an, an expected relationship between government and citizens. So am I right in understanding um, the way you have laid out, you know, what the social contract means? 
Yes, I think I would just go one step further, actually, to, to, to kind of articulate the point that uh, when we talk of democracy, in essence, I think what we're talking of is the social contract. And what we're not really talking about is the aesthetics of voting. I think the fact that a huge number of citizens in the West um, do not exercise their right to vote, but still expect their democracy speaks to my point, which is that democracy or people power, which is the simplest way of translating it, people power is not the same thing as the exercise of voting every four or five years. Okay, good, good. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So uh, one thing that that struck me um, with your perspective as well in going through i mean as i said it's a very pragmatic book it's it's, it's not necessarily a philosophical book and i'm probably making you delve into philosophy <laughs> i don't know if uh, more than than you might want but but these things intrigue me um and i i find that it's interesting you're, you're almost in some way like an like an old-fashioned uh, optimistic gradualist you know gradualist reforming liberal who has a fundamental faith in the system and its reformability. And I'm just saying that because, you know, uh, in so much of the literature and so much of the, the, the um, you know, the spirit of the age right now, you know, of Black Lives Matter, iconoclism, and tearing down statues and questioning the past and populism and de- demagogues and existential angst and black swan events like pandemics and fears of environmental collapse and cataclysm and disgust with the establishment from both the right and the left. You know, there there are all these huge fundamental critiques of the system itself, you know, that is a big part of the discourse in a way that hasn't been for a very long time. But but you kind of hold on to to this... uh, to this faith almost, if, if I may put it that way, uh, um, you, you can obviously res- respond if, if, if you uh, think I'm mischaracterizing it. But um, you know that, that the system is reformable. It doesn't need radical change. If you just make these strategic tweaks, we can actually make it much uh, better. It, am I understanding you correctly? And if so, could you elaborate on it more? Because I think that very point itself is interesting. I think you're spot on. Um, uh, And the reason I've gone for more elaborate uh, tweaks than an upheaval is uh, upheavals are hard to uh, start and even harder to manage. Um, So you've got a a challenge there in terms of actually getting things off the ground. Too many upheaval movements are based on a critique without offering a set of solutions, you know, a meaningful set of steps that people uh, en masse can feel comfortable in taking. Um, There's no point, you know, critiquing ABC if you don't have some kind of solution set which people can move forward with. Um, And I've long since learned that 
you really can have very significant change by very small tweaks. You know, you don't need to break down every structure that we've created and start from scratch, which I think would be an impossible exercise. I think you can get to the promised land by making small tweaks to the system, which are, which are not particularly uh, legally or economically uh, taxing, but get us to where we want to get to. Um, and I think that's really my, you know, my having a few more gray hairs than many of the people who are, who are thumping the streets and demanding change. I think the fact that I've been through businesses and organizations which have needed changing and which have wanted to improve and kind of not, not moving towards ripping everything up in those organizations has led me to believe that, yes, you know what? You don't actually have to burn the house down to fix it. You can fix the house without burning everything down. And I think in our particular case, we have one advantage that previous generations didn't have in affecting many of the solutions that I'm suggesting, which is technology. We've got information technology at a quantum and, as, and, 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 and at a depth that we've never had before. You know, we can leverage off that uh, to get us to where we want to get to in a way that 50, 100, 200 years ago was unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, sorry, did you want to continue? I just took a swig of my Tim Horton <laughs> coffee. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Oh, Tim Horton. Yeah, very Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, so uh, in in your uh, analysis, uh, you you focus, you hone in. You, you know, the the bulk of your book. Is, is addressing what you see as the three major problems. It's, it's in the title of your book itself, the subtitle, um, waste, you know, representation and accountability, that, that these are the problems. So, so uh, again, I, I suppose th- this is my last philosophical question here, but, but is it that um, you think that the sort of deeper existential critiques that that we're seeing from every almost every quarter in in western democracies at the moment uh do, do you think that they are es- essentially uh mistaken that there isn't really an existential problem but but it, it's really at this level of waste representation and accountability or do you think they are kind of uh um parallel problems that that okay you you have these problems of waste represented representation and accountability and the existential problems, you know, may, may be there uh, and, and we'll have to sort of deal with them later, you know, and questions of race, identity, culture, um, you know, the foundation of Western values. It's, you know, all, all those things that, that other people have brought in. And we, we can deal with that later, but that, you know, the, these questions are uh, of, of representation, waste and accountability are, you're just dealing with them in a sort of compartmental way that this is important and you want to focus on that? Or is it that you're saying, you know, those deeper existential problems, you're actually making too much of that. That's that's really, uh, once we deal with these three things, you're going to see that that those problems are are not as big as you thought. I'm just interested in, in the way you conceive of it. I don't want to put out there a solution set for a set of political problems which are in vogue. Black Lives Matter is in vogue. It wasn't yeah. popular five years ago. It will not be popular in five years' time is my best guess, but who knows. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
if we take Black Lives Matter as a movement, how would it fit in with the uh, three pillars that I've that I push for? Um, I think if we have an accountable and representative government, the Black Lives Matter movement wouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm not so sure if there are many major political problems that would not be resolved if we had democratic government. I don't think what we have is democratic. I don't think, you know, I mean, democratic as in people power. The people are not in power in government in Canada, in the US or the UK or New Zealand or Australia. The people are not in power. And as a result of that, um, we have all sorts of political volcanoes erupting up once in a while. And that's going to be, I think, a deeper, faster and more uh, painful reality for us because of the internet. We're, We're able to galvanize, we're able to share, we're able to spread information in a way that we couldn't do 20, 30, 40 years ago. And the rate at which we are moving is so much faster than it was before as well as a society. We, we, we can respond to events in Tokyo that took place 30 minutes ago, which a century ago was like ridiculous. So we are moving at a much faster pace. And unless we begin to put our thinking hats on in terms of, okay, what is wrong with our political system? You know, where is the democracy? Where is the people power in this? Where is, where is that accountability? Where is that representation? And where is that efficiency of tax dollars? I think we're just going to end up with Black Lives Movement being replaced by some other movement in 24 months and another one in 24 months after that. Yeah, so, that, so that's interesting. So in a sense, you're kind of uh, inverting the understanding, whereas, you know, pe- people would, have, you know, say that the fundamental problems are the things that, you know, Black Lives Matter are talking about. But, but you might actually be saying, no, that's actually symptomatic. Um, that, that And if it's, it's not Black Lives Matter today, it's going to be something else tomorrow. It might be Trumpism it might, or, or something. That, and, and that really all, all these are uh, sort of results of the lack of representation, the, the lack of accountability, um, etc. So Black that- Lives Matter, I think, um, I don't view their movement or the movement as an existential movement. Um, right. um, I mean, if you're going to try and break this down at the level of existentialism, I'd be saying that the problem there, not a political problem or a government problem, but the problem there would be not so much that Black Lives Matter, it's just that we've lost focus that human identity is more important than any identity that we have. It's, right. we, you know, we are first and foremost human beings, and then we may be pink-haired or lesbian or you know, Chinese or whatever else, but, but first and foremost, we are humans. And this is, a thing, this is a point that I actually kind of flirted with in my first book, Reconstructing Strategy, which is this notion that we often look at other people through subhuman identity lenses. We all say that person's, you know, Jewish, that person's a football player, that person's a physician, that person's an owner of a Ferrari, you know, as opposed to actually that person is first a human being. And from there that, you know, once you have that existential point grasp, then an awful lot of the racial tensions that we have would dissipate. But having said that, if you kind of play into the, into the space of public policy and government, which is really where, 
where the broken contract focuses, then I don't really think that many of the political tensions that we have today would surface in quite the dramatic way and quite the painful way that they are if we have meaningful democracy. Right, right. Yeah, and, and I mean, you and you make the point in your book, and you you actually say that you know Western democracies aren't really democracies, which is a a, a strong statement, uh, and and from my understanding that that comes from your your evaluation, your analysis that the people are actually not in power, and and that's that's the basis of democracy, not voting. It's whether the people are in power. So, so I'm interested uh, in in uh, for you to elaborate that for our listeners, and you know, so why do you say that? What you know, how do you justify it? And and do is is there something else you, you might call uh, you think would better describe the state of Western democracy today? Um, if if you're not if you're saying it's not a democracy, what, is it a uh, bureaucratic rule or 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 what? So, could you elaborate, please? So why do I think we do not have a democracy out here in the West? I think um, by people power, um, the closest proxy that I can think of that we've had has been back in Athens more than 2,000 years ago. And yes, it was very caveated because women weren't allowed to participate. Uh, A whole bunch of non-citizens weren't allowed to participate at all. Um, and you've got slaves and all the rest of it. So I don't want to suggest that we want anything like that, but it's worth kind of reminding ourselves that the people, the male citizen population of Athens was proactively involved in the legislature of their country. They didn't really have a choice. Everybody got together to vote for legislation. They didn't outsource that legislation. What we now have is a system, a, 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 a political system that has evolved bit by bit by bit, not by, not by design as such, but really kind of incremental historical evolution, where we have outsourced our democracy to two categories of people, one, elected representatives, and two, civil servants. Now, what's interesting about this entire representative business is that the reason I don't think we have people power which is the less controversial uh, expression than I think democracy. Um, because let's face it, North Korea, Sweden, Britain, they all think they're democracies. But if we focus on the word or the expression people power, we don't have people power through, through our representatives because here's what happens. Every election, four or five candidates stand in front of us and they just fire hose us with information. Some of it's a pack of lies, some of it's some truth, some of it's a bunch of promises, some of it's a bit of a hybrid of everything. But we get firehosed, and we get firehosed even more so in the information technology area that we're in. Now, once that representative is elected, you've got to bear in mind they have no resources to themselves. They've got a desk, they've got a secretary, they've got a few researchers, and that's about it. They have no power, executive power, to do very much. So our MPs, our our, our representatives, you know, they don't get to control government. They are subject to the party whip. Okay, Mm -hmm. so the party leader tells them what they will or will not do. And the party leader tells them what the key policies are or are not. And within all of that, then for four or five years, that individual is sat there without us having the faintest idea what they do on a day to day basis. Yes, they'll they'll kind of brag about it on Twitter and they'll put the social media posts up. But do we really know what they're up to? And the answer is absolutely not. We've got no idea. 
And they come back to us in four or five years' time and claim a bunch of successes, again, which are beyond verification, and expect us to vote on that. Now, how is that people power? You know, that to me is like, we've got no idea what you've done for four or five years. You, we do know that you listen to your party whips. We do know that you have lobbyists knocking on your door. We do know that you may have personal or ideological ambitions as well. Okay. And, you know, you may be granting a favor or two in the process during your tenure, but what is it that you've actually achieved for us? You know, how have you represented our interests? What did you do to fight our case? Um, And even, you know, you've got this massive blindness, I think, in the system that we somehow think that that's democratic. It's not, you know, it's, it's, you know, we don't even elect our prime ministers yeah. or presidents for that matter. I mean, Hillary Clinton got way more votes than Donald Trump did in the last election, both of whom, by the way, who got less votes than people who didn't vote at all. Yet Donald Trump is the US president, you know, and Boris Johnson, for instance, wasn't elected prime minister. He was chosen prime minister by the Conservative Party. People never voted for the prime minister who happens to call the big shots. So you've got these very, very obvious um, kind of black holes, which we are so used to that we don't take notice of. And from that kind of regularity, we're like, yeah, you know what? We must have a democracy, you know. Um, mm-hmm. how, how can it be the case that 80-90% of every legislature or 70% is male? I mean, most of the populations in the West are female dominant, well, in terms of numbers at least. You know? So where's the representation there? And more importantly, at the influential end of government. So I've just focused on the, rep- on the elected piece. Now let's focus on the civil service. 99.5% of our public officials are unelected. They are not answerable to us in any meaningful sense. They do what they do. We have really no idea as citizens what they're doing, whether they're doing a good job. We sure know, statistically, we know that it's very hard in the public sector to be fired for underperformance. And we know that the public sector staff are typically way sicker in terms of sick day leaves in the private sector. But beyond that, we have very little control. We have very little influence. We have very little ownership of the 99.5% of our government, which is permanent. So you've got to ask yourself the question that if we have so little influence through our elected representatives, and we have practically no influence with 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 99.5% of our officials, how is that people power? Mm-hmm. How is that meaningful people power? That to me is like, we've just elected a small constituency who for the most part have no real meaningful power, except the power to perhaps appoint their political leader who happens to be the head of the country's government. And we have almost like zero influence over the rest of the government, which is 99.5%. Now, in everyday language and media and in the newspapers, we kind of don't take sight of this. We kind of just, I mean, our focus, we have not focused on this simple reality. And I think if we began to focus on this, 
we'd begin to realize, you know what? The citizen isn't really at the center of what happens in government. Mm-hmm. We are yeah, almost I- a pawn which is played around with in a political game. Yeah. And that's something that I take offense at personally. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, you, you, you lay this out uh, in your book, uh, definitely. And, uh, and, you know, one of the virtues and the strengths and, and the focus of your book is, is not merely the, the complaint. Um, you, you make it and you make your case and you, you analyze the problem, but then you give very practical solutions um so so for each of these problems in the areas of of representation of of accountability uh etc um you you have your suggestion so so i mean so you here you are you just presented this you know situation that sounds you know um, where one just throws one's hands up in the air and and despairs but but that's not the point of your book at all uh so you you want to go through uh, the things we can do about this? So let's just roll out a few examples of what we might consider. The first is term limits on uh, elected representatives as well as public servants, uh, public policy, sorry, uh, civil servants. So I would put a cap, very frankly, on the tenure of any elected representative to, I don't know, 10, 12 years, whatever, um, whatever deemed sensible. The pushback that you'll get from politicians, by the way, obviously will be very upset because they want to, because they have their job as a representative. They have a huge fundraising advantage in that um, for the next campaign. I mean, they're not going to be very happy with this because they'll say, why are you stopping the will of the people? Uh, Why can't the people choose me for another four years or six years? My pushback would be because our democracy is more important. Our democracy, our people power is more important then you're being re-voted in. We need to have more people going through our political system, more ordinary citizens going through than what's happened in the last many decades, you know, which is which really the career politician who frankly is good at nothing other than being elected and being right. re-elected. You know, and that in itself is an art form. Let's not let's not push that you know, into a corner. You know, a goalkeeper has a very specific art form on a football field. Mm -hmm. Let's not fail to recognize that the art of being elected and being re-elected requires skill, temperament, you know, and a certain intelligence. So, but, but, but we need to recognize that and say, well, you know what, that's a great skill you have, but we do need democracy. We want people power. We want the, the citizenry to get involved. So you put term limits. Another thing that I think is worth thinking about is, putting every elected representative's agenda and possibly even every civil servant's daily agenda available on screen. There's no, I mean, yes, there'll be some people who are doing very sensitive national security work and you may need to work out a mechanism to exclude their information. But why can't I see what my MP was doing today? Why can't I just see her timetable for nine to five or whatever hours she was working or wasn't working? Why can't I see that on my screen? Furthermore, why can't I see what she actually achieved in that particular block? And there's no harm in saying, you know, 10 a.m. till 2 p.m. had meeting with X, Y, and Z. Didn't actually achieve very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bit disappointed, you know. Yeah, that happens. That happens to everybody. We've all been in meetings where we've sat there for three or four hours twiddling our thumbs and figured out, you know what, this is a waste of everybody's time. Yeah. So why can't we have that? And another piece, for instance, would be holding 
uh, uh, civil servants to account for delays, project delays, or budgetary overruns. Yeah. Why can't we introduce that into the equation? And there's another piece, which is how is it that we don't fire people in the public sector for underperformance? It's harder, statistically it is harder, to be fired by the federal government of Canada for underperformance than it is to apply for the astronaut's position on the NASA programs and get selected. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Why can't, we, why can't we have a more accountable public sector, you know, a more democratic public sector than what we have now? Right. So the, the, those are, are um, I suppose, the, the main um, suggestions that you forward and elaborate in your book about uh, the small little tweaks. Uh, you, you, you called it uh, an Archimedean point, uh, you know, in, in each of these problems of waste, representation, uh, accountability. Um, how do you, uh, so you, you th- you've thrown these ideas out there to uh, promote thought, to stimulate discussion. I know you explicitly say in the book that, um, you know, you, you, you don't necessarily say that this is, uh, the, you know, the, the ultimate um, solution or, and, and you, you are, are, are happy to, to stimulate debate and, and get other ideas in the fray. Um, so... But in, in terms of, of, of where you, how you see your, your suggestions uh, moving forward, uh, is, is this, uh, I mean, it would obviously require some sort of political will. And you'd be, let's say with the public uh, servants, for example. And when I say, I mean, I thought, you know, that, hey, that's a great idea. You know, the top 5% get rewarded. The bottom two have to be weeded out. And I immediately thought about, if I were to make such a, a, a proposal here, the pushback I'd get from the unions and uh, and, and a whole bunch of uh, public sector workers, it, it, there's a huge resistance. How how, how do you see um, these ideas uh, moving forward, uh, gaining traction? What what do you, have you really um, thought about uh, that uh, in, in terms of pushing forward? What what do you have in in your mind of, of how how we engage in this uh, project of renewal? So I think my thinking has been that if I can put out there, if I can communicate um, in our social media era, um, an analysis of the problems um, and suggest some solutions which are not specific to a particular race, or to a religious identity, or to a particular profession, or to a particular uh, um, income bracket or wealth bracket, if I can put something out there which says, look, here are the problems, and here are some solutions which really, in principle, ought to work for a wide spectrum of society, there ought to be some traction. I'm hoping there's some traction there. Yes, you will innately have pockets of resistance. So the unions, for instance, that you refer to, yes, they are good in some cases for protecting um, employee rights where they deserve to be protected because of malfeasance or you know bad um, employment circumstances. But very often they will fight tooth and nail 
for the protection of um, of, of jobs, which frankly, you know, should have been taken care of and fired and all the rest of it many, many years ago. So there will be, there'll be resistance from elected politicians. I mean, how many elected politicians want to be told or will buy into, you know, having um, term limits, which is a reason in the US, I think you also have a problem that the vast majority of Americans want caps on electoral spending. They want mm-hmm. a cap, but which politician who's already got his seat and therefore has a fundraising advantage, which politician is going to say, yeah, you know what? Let's put a cap on the amount of dollars that come into the system. So you will have resistance pockets. But I think if if I can get out there an analysis of the problem set, which is that we don't have the democracy we think we have. We actually don't really have much meaningful people power. And from there, I can give out a good dozen odd suggestions, tweaks to how to make a big difference. I'm hoping that a broader spectrum of people will come together and and hit at least a few of these on the head and say, yeah, you know what? We want to know what our MP's agenda was for next week. We want to um, um, massively reward that 5% of civil servants who are outperformers. We want to be able to recruit with the same success rates as top employers uh, on uh, Ivy League campuses for our civil servants, you know, um, I think there'll be an appetite for that because, frankly, we are all sensing that the system is no longer conducive. It's no longer there for the people. It's really there for itself in very large measure. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, I'd be interested in knowing the ideas that you you forward, your, your solutions. Um, you know, how, how much are, you know, completely original? How much are taken from your experience in, in the private sector? Uh, and, uh, you know, how much, say, from experiences in other countries? Because I, you know, I, I find East Asian government very interesting because it has a lot of th- these elements, I think, that you're talking about in terms of accountability, um, e- even though it doesn't have the, the framework of sort of Western human rights. Um, but but they, they do have strong elements of trust between government and the population, which is really absent in the West. And people have even remarked about that in the whole management of coronavirus and whatnot. Um, so yeah, so so um, so you know, are, are there examples like maybe from where you might have uh, gotten inspiration uh, for these ideas, where where you've seen it being implemented, where you've seen a country being transformed, or you've seen a company transformed by, by these ideas? And if so, could you uh, share them with us? I think the private sector is full of um, illustrations and examples of um, transformation for the better through accountability mechanisms. I mean, that's, I think we've seen the evolution of that entire universe uh, in the private sector over the last 70 odd years since, you know, with all sorts of variations. But this notion that we can make our organization better by making individuals more accountable for what they do and therefore what they don't do has been part and parcel of um, top-tier organizations for many, many years. I mean, KPIs, for instance, key performance indicators, you know, are not new. They've been around for decades to give you one simple tactical tool that can be used. Um, so there's plenty of precedent for us to focus 
from the private sector. Now, having said that, I don't want to be the person who goes out and says, the private sector is the panacea to all our solutions, to, sorry, to, to all of our ills. I don't want to be the person who's a diehard libertarian advocate. Yes, there is a space for government. There's a role for government. Um, it is a very, very important role, not least because it takes so much of our money in taxes, uh, including, incidentally, the money that people who are homeless pay as well. This is an important point, I think, which often gets overlooked. Homeless people mm-hmm. do pay tax, whether it's sales tax for their simple bread and milk, you know, or tax for their clothes. There is an element there uh, that we have to take a huge ethical responsibility for. So the, 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 the examples in terms of specific bits and pieces, I, I, you know, you can, you can search left, right and center, and I think you'll find many more beyond the one that I've just given. But I think it's important to point out that um, our Western democracy is part of our culture. And I don't like the idea. I don't, I'm, I'm not a big fan of what management consultants call best practices. You know? right. So I don't want to go out there and say, okay, you know, Singapore has managed to pull ABC off and therefore we should use the same strategies as Singapore because yeah, I mean, like you say, East Asia has a very different relationship between citizen and state, you know, uh, at which individual rights don't feature remotely as prominently as they might out in the Midwest of the USA. Um, so I don't really like this idea of kind of copying and pasting things that have worked elsewhere. I think it's far more important for us to recognize the problems that we have in what we have and then kind of say within our social, cultural, political landscape, you know, what are sensible tweaks that we could do, that we could effect, that will in turn have a very significant impact? You know, now, to the point about whether we can borrow from within the five countries, of course we can. Canada is wonderful, I think, in terms of its stemming, in terms of its tightening the cash that the political system can receive. You know, there are very tight limits as to what an individual can fund in the political system, you know, in this country. We can't put in $10,000 uh, per year into the political system of this country, whereas in the U.S., you can put in a $5 million check and, you know, you'll be pretty pretty assured that you'll be an ambassador if your candidate wins uh, the presidential election. So, yes, the U.S. can look at the Canadian example and say, you know, maybe we should have a, we should have a look at how that's worked. But again... I caveat that because I'm reluctant to just copy and paste across political cultures because democracy is really a political culture. Yeah. That's, that's the sort of one of the central arguments of your book. Well, what, that's what the social contract is, isn't it? It's, it's really an embedded cultural uh, expectation. I'm going to put it that way. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've, I've kept you a while. So I mean, in, in terms of trying to, uh, you know, bring this to a close. I, I do want to ask you this, um, this kind of concluding question or, 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 or like looking forward question again. And, and where do you, you see democracy going? Because it, there are, you know, a few points in your book where, where you say, you know, if we don't tackle these issues, um, you know, it, it may actually disappear. I mean, do, do you really think that it, it actually might 
you know, disappear or morph. Or, or in fact, I mean, maybe I'm reading it wrong because you, you do say in the book that it's actually no longer really a, a democracy, you know, and, and with this sort of lockdowns and the, you know, the, the loss of, of, of civil liberties, you know, m- many people in the United uh, States, you know, I, I don't know how, how big that uh, discourse is in Canada, but certainly in the United States, pe- people talk about how, you know, the, these lockdowns have just sort of reversed the constitution and, uh, and whatnot. I mean, do you, do you, you know, where, where do you see, um, you, you know, th- this, the, the future of democracy and if we don't answer the, the questions that, you know, that you raise and, and some of the solutions that you offer? I think um, we are on the search for alternatives. Um, and that search is taking us to increasingly polarized, confrontational um, directions. We're definitely on the search for something new, our faith in what we think is democracy or what the system that we call democracy is. Our faith in that has diminished sharply in the last 20 years in almost every Western country. We are less um, we are less enthusiastic about the democracy that we have than we've been in a long, long while. Now, where do I think we'll go from here? I think that we need to have people put out solutions that aren't dramatic, that aren't violent, that aren't nauseous, um, and that, frankly, don't demand a complete political and legal revolution because all of that stuff is either too hard or uh, unpleasant. And I think what I've tried to do really is to put out solution sets to the search for a better political system, invoking our very core democratic principles and saying, you know what, if we could reinvent the democracy that we, that we wish we had, albeit by making small changes to the, the democracy that we're fed up with, that's well worth looking at. That's well worth having a go at because it will, hopefully, it will address many of the key concerns that we have. It will dissipate many of the political and economic frustrations that we feel without the need for chaos and without the need for a systemic breakdown. And, you know, I think one of the things that I don't, I don't really fancy, I think, is is any movement that goes out there and says we have to rip up the entire fabric of whatever we put together because that is a messy place to be in. That's a very tough place to be in. It's not going to be pleasant for anybody if you move in that direction. I'm much more, I'm much keener on just looking at what we have and saying, look, guys, we can make small changes to all of this, you know. Um, and in making a series of small changes, we can, you know, have a, have a serious impact on the on the gap that currently exists between government and people you know and I'm much more an advocate of that than i am of some of what's happening out there right now yeah yeah definitely i mean my that sort of almost answers my next question my next question which is uh to to wrap it up which is basically you know the message that you'd like to leave your readers with but i think that that's that's it isn't it 
I think so. I think the only other thing I was going to suggest would people buy my book and buy it for presents and all the rest of it for Christmas. And all that, you know, but that would be a stretch. I think that would be a bit of a stretch. But no, I think you, you know, in fairness and and and, and jokes aside, that's the nail, that's the nail on the head. We can fix this thing. Yeah, um, yeah. We can do it without creating a lot of noise and a lot of pain. Mm, absolutely. So, are you working on any other projects right now? I'm working on. Any- you know what? I'm just keen on uh, on this book launch in a couple of weeks, yeah. and then I'm going to take a couple of couple of days off and just uh, take a bit of a chill. And we'll good, go from there. Are you, so, are you going to do a, a little bit of a, a book launch tour? Well, COVID being COVID, it's kind of really right. got out there. So, um, I'm not quite sure what's in line in terms of book tour. I'm not sure uh, how things will go. I know there'll be an awful lot of electronic presence. I have a blog, Doctor sq.com drsq.com that uh i'm gonna have to keep uh, uh an active eye on and i don't know what's uh what's in store given the uncertainty of this uh virus absolutely absolutely yeah so so um so listeners can reach you um where can, can you just give us that uh url again it's uh drsq dr sq.com um okay that's the place that i kind of post every week i think all right, excellent, excellent. Well, thanks so much for this interview. It, it's been very informative and enjoyable. Oh, thank you very much for the time. I've I've enjoyed having this opportunity. Thank you. So once again, the book is The Broken Contract, Making Our Democracies Accountable, Representative, and Less Wasteful. And we've been speaking to the author, Saqib Qureshi. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. That's all for Politics and Polemics this week. If you like this, remember to check out my other podcast, Independent Thought and Freedom, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, if you are an academic and want to get heard nationally, check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com. Thanks, and see you next week.